be in Psalm 40, and then Hebrews chapter 10. And I've got Psalm 140 here. That's not going to work. We'll just start there and go backward. And I do believe that you heard this text last week read. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the, to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. And they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. I did not read this until Monday. And it was given to me Sunday as an encouragement to a very difficult week, difficult month, difficult year, difficult four years. And when I read it, it did exactly what it was intended to do. It was to delight my soul in the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, we talk from this pulpit a lot. Over the last three to four months has been the longest season of not teaching that I've ever had in my adult life. We used to be five to ten hours a week, went to two hours a week, went to one hour a week, went to several months, maybe here and there. And it was refreshing at times, but debilitating at times. We come here, and while we have this 
formality of separation between this elevated platform, this acrylic podium, this sound system for the sake of your hearing, and you all sitting down there as if you're about to see me dance. It is not indicative of the intimacy that's required nor taking place at this very moment. We don't go to church and come to church and do church things. We are the body of Christ that gathers. Ecclesia, the gathering. It's a word that means just like container. You have a container for gas, you have a container for water, you have a container for soda, you have a container for tea, you have a container for whatever it might be, nuts and bolts and pickles and peanuts. We have gatherings. We gather at family reunions, we gather at home, we gather at the food market, we gather at the grocery store, we gather at the, uh, at the polling place, we gather at a sporting event. The word ecclesia goes with all of the, anytime more people than one are gathering together, it is an ecclesia, it is an assembly, it is a church. According to the language, simply put, the word church is not even the right word. It's, it's a transliterated expression of antiquity that has come to mean something that it doesn't. It comes from the idea of kirk, which means uh, institution, which is why the church feels institutional, which is why the church can exist without the faces remaining the same. So like the comedian that said years ago that the reason that they dress all the men the same in the wedding is says something happens, they can just all take one step to the right. And that's why they say this man, any old man will do. You know. That's how we've become in our mind regarding ourselves as the body of Christ. We're just part of the church. And it means very little anymore in our society. And beloved, I'm telling you, as hard as I have tried over the last 20 plus, 3, 4, 5 years of, of teaching and 23 years in, past, in the pastorate and going on 12 years as a congregation, we still aren't getting it. We still aren't getting it. We look at our obligation to the assembly as either guilt-ridden, oh, I didn't make it, oh, poor me, bad me, or either frivolously, eh, grace, grace, grace. And either way, it's not a law, it's not a condition of our salvation, it is a promise tethered to our joy. And so much so that the roles in the body of Christ are so covered up and smothered by our cultural ideologies. And keep in mind, beloved, that we theologically and doctrinally have come exponentially far from the status quo of how the world views it. Yet we are wanting The roles within the congregation are still such as, uh, you know, what's my job? What's my duty? Okay, we have jobs and duties at home too, right? We have jobs and duties and responsibilities and obligations in our community. But we've lost the sight and we've lost the experience of knowing intimacy as a body. I want you to think for just a minute. It's important to where I'm going to be going in the next few weeks. 
I'm taking some time out of Timothy. I'm going to preach some from the Psalms. And then I'm going to talk about the life of Joseph. But my body is not me. And I don't want to get into philosophy, and I sure as heck don't want to start barking up that tree and everybody lose focus and then zone out and go, oh, it's time to go home. And then, what was it about today? Because that's what happens with me. I zone out, and then it's time to go home. Don't zone out. Just be with me. But my body is not me. My body contains me. My consciousness, my person, my thoughts. And I'm not even going to go there. But when this body is dead and gone, I am still a person. And the promise of the word of God is that one day God in his promises will recreate a body for me that will not suffer. And part of me is my mind. Part of me is the systems of the functioning of my biological makeup. And everyone under the sound of my voice is absolutely identical in that. So, when I broke my foot two years ago because of my new bifocals, and I just threw myself off of a tractor thinking the ground was there, and then I ended up with an infection, and then I ended up with a whole sort of stuff, and then last year ended up with you know, three and a half months in the bed in severe pain with more infection and all sorts of things. I was not in a good place, emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically. The fourth, fifth, sixth dimensions were a little foggy. You laugh. I think about that stuff when I'm hurting. And all of a sudden I realize, you know what? I am broken, I am sick, I am diseased, I am not. So all of a sudden, my person became my body. You ever been there? We identify with the experiences there. But let me tell you what couldn't happen. Oh, it was just your GI. It was just your foot. It was just your shoulder. Well, you tell that to the rest of your body when one part hurts. And you just need to get that part to just simmer down now while the rest of it does its job. Is that how it works? No. Remember the years and seasons of debilitating migraines. By God's mercy, I don't have those anymore, but they could come back any given minute where I go blind, I can't see anything, like I'm going through a a trip kaleidoscope. And then the pain starts and the pressure starts. That's my head hurting. (laughs) But if you start looking at the scientific reality of what pain is, it's it's a perception from receptors telling your body to feel, but it's not physical. It doesn't exist. It's just you're experiencing that which is intangible. It's like downloading content that you can never hold. And when the Xbox dies, oh, well, money gone. I mean, it's just garbage. But yet, that's what it is. You can't tell your, you can't go to the ball game and play softball when you have a migraine. You can't make yourself do what your body won't allow it to do. Beloved, the point I'm making is when one part of my body is hurting, I am hurting. Though I am not my body, my body controls me. The church is the same way. 
you are not me and I am not you and this is not our identity. Our identity is that we are the bride of Christ. We are the beloved of God. We are the royal priesthood. We are the elect. We are the chosen. We are those whom God has blessed. We are those before the foundation of the world that God has loved eternally. And we just need to keep in mind that we are all that body. But we are individually members of it. And when one of us is hurting, we all feel that pain. When one of us rejoices, we can all be glad. And beloved, in life and the multiplicity and the manifoldness of, 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 of having critical mass, the more families that we touch, the more opportunity that we're going to be weeping, hurting, crying, rejoicing, and partying simultaneously. And the world looks on and goes, these people are on drugs. And if you were a teenager in the 80s, there were a certain subsect of, uh, of, of Christian people that called that drug the Holy Spirit, <laughs> you know. And we won't even go there. The Spirit of God is always a spirit of order. He does not speak or point to himself. The Spirit of God in the Bible only and always ever ever speaks of Christ. So anytime someone's saying God the Spirit is doing this and it's not about revelation of Jesus and His finished work, it's not the Spirit of God. It's what 1 John teaches us, chapter 4. Moving right along. We are the body of Christ. Imagine David for a minute. We're in the Psalms. Imagine David in this perspective. He is in the assembly as part of the body of Christ. Remember, I mentioned roles. And so here's David worshiping in the assembly. A bunch of rules. We've got no rule except that the air better be running and the heat better be working. I mean, that's about the only rule. Internally speaking. And we may have a lot of other things that we think need to be. And we've had people in our congregation who thought there should be a lot of strictness in the context of worship. And they're not with us anymore because they made those an issue of righteousness. And we plead with those people to listen to the gospel and succumb to the truth of being a body redeemed by the Lord's body. Nope! There's nothing we can do about that. So here is David, who is part of the assembly, who is part of the nation of Israel, who is prophesied to be the king, and he was the king. And we know the life of David. <laughs> we see David's example. We have David's words. Before many of us even know the context of, which the, of the Psalms and what they mean and why they're there, when we are children, we are singing the Psalms of David in our religious circles. We see the, 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 the Psalms of David. There's not a person that I've ever met who's never heard the 23rd Psalm. And if you ask them, do you know the 23rd Psalm? They go, no, I've never heard of that. And you say, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, they can just about quote the first few lines. Just like there's not a secular uh, 
athletic team that's ever existed in the country since the 19th century that hasn't said the, quote, Lord's Prayer at some time or another in history. We have disconnected the popular idea of pluralism, which America is a pluralistic society, and it's a religious free society. That's why we exist. That's why we escaped England to come over here so that we could be never be told or pressured by any social means or governmental means to worship or not worship in any way. So this pressure from the evangelicals to make America Christian is unconstitutional and sinful, according to Romans 13. Christians are Christians and non-Christians are not. Just like I have a bride and children and those are my family and there's no one else that could be part of my family unless I adopt them in. You are my church family. And people all over the world can say, well, I'm part of that family. No, they're not until they come and be a part of our family through whatever means we say is necessary. Beloved, think about these things. I don't want to side rail. Here's David, who is the king. These are his people. He has authority to rule them rightly. And we know the life of David, right? We know the story. We go to Samuel. We can look at the story of David. He was not even on the table to be anointed as king. He was the small one. The not-so-masculine one. The firecracker, little man syndrome, as a lot of folks call it. And David was a whiner and a poet and a warrior. A musician. He killed lions and bears. Tigers. <laughs> okay, I know y'all were thinking it. Except that goes in the middle, right? Oh my. He stood up against Goliath, taking food to the war, and heard this loudmouthed Philistine blaspheming his God. And it riled up in David, and David's like, Y'all hear this idiot? Saul, go get that dude. You know, Saul was the greatest warrior of the army. Saul hated David and loved David and hated David. David's sin caused him to have great enemies. David's calling caused him to have great enemies, and yet he was still the leader of his people. And so when he went to the assembly, he was not just a worshiper, but let me tell you what David did. I'm going to tell you, this is something that's been speaking to me. David worshipped how he wanted to worship with integrity. And there were a lot of rules in the assembly of Israel. You had to dress this way and eat this stuff and burn this stuff and sing this song and pour this water and hold your nose and do the hokey pokey and all the other different things that you had to do. There were so many regulations and they all pointed to one thing and that is that Christ alone can save His people. 
And every type and shadow in the worship, in the assembly, every time they spoke, every time they stood, every time they sat, every word that was spoken, every psalm that was sung, it was to point to the reality that only God in His absolute grace and mercy and loving kindness and His eternal decrees after the, con- after the counsel of His own will for the sake of His own name would put the law of His righteousness in the hearts of His people that they may know that they are forgiven because they cannot do it. And Jesus Christ became the law breaker when he was the righteousness of God. And David had no clue. Remember what he told his wife when she was embarrassed that he was just pulling off all of his clothes in worship? Remember that story? And that's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's a narrative. It's not something the Bible says, now go do likewise. Paul never said, be like David. Matter of fact, David got it wrong 90% of the time. Don't be like David. Matter of fact, there's nothing in the scripture taught about a character that we should emulate but Jesus Christ. Who, when he was persecuted, maligned, mistreated, he kept his mouth shut. He submitted himself to the one who is faithful. And David's wife was like, hey, you are embarrassing the dog do out of me in worship yesterday. I mean, you were down to your underpants. Crying and praising. I mean, snot running down your beard. You looked a mess, dude. You were, you were embarrassing. And what does David say? He says, oh, dear woman, I will become more undignified than this. How do you become more undignified than your boxers? I guess you take them off. I don't know what the threat was, but point taken, David. Worship as you may. Just keep it up. Good job. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. But there is something to be said about understanding the context in which David writes these songs. They're out of despair. I want you to look at verse 17 of Psalm 40. Because this has to be the meat and the potatoes of this entire thing. It holds it all together as a perspective. As for me, I am poor and needy but the Lord takes thought for me and then David says to the Lord you are my help and my deliverer do not delay oh my God weakness is a holistic and comprehensive description of our human condition We are perishable product. Yet we live as though we are building an eternal kingdom, an eternal body, an eternal mind. Beloved, I have wiped the slate clean of every intake in the last 12 days. Everything that I take into my head, I have wiped, I literally have wiped it clean and started from scratch. 
social media feeds, email lists, blogs, readings, subscriptions, prescriptions, whatever it might be. I just stopped and started. This is good. This is good. And you know what I'm doing more than anything? And I want to sound super spiritual right now, but I am putting the word of God in my head first and last every day. First and last, even when I don't feel like it, even when there's something else more pressing, first and last. And if I don't do that, I'm shaken. But I am absorbing things that are stimulating my thoughts as they relate to filtering this world through the gospel of grace. And I'm reading some garbage that would not be biblical in and of itself. I'm reading some social commentary from people who are unknown. If I, I said their names, you probably couldn't Google them and find them. But yet they are thinking in ways that I have been thinking. And I am seeing that I'm not alone in my thinking. This is not the first time I've had this happen in my life. It's probably the eighth. You ever been there? You come up with a great idea or this great epiphany and you write it down. I write. I've written over 400 pages in the last six weeks. Just journaling rambling, expressiveness. You get to see some of it when I throw it up on Facebook. Nonsense. They go, wow, I have discovered this idea that will help the world focus. Type it. Search it. Look. Some dude in the 1600s said the same thing. Nothing's new under the sun. No idea is unique. Technological advances, yes, they expand, but the ideas underneath them are all the same. There's no debate that's going to win a new argument that hasn't already been applied. That's why we don't even have to, I mean, you know, for the lawyers in the room, we don't even have to go and come up with an argument. Let's just look at the last hundred years of court cases and argue that they already argued, that somebody else already argued. Case closed! When it comes to the gospel, it's even simpler. It's even simpler. God has promised, period. God has promised that in the assembly, we will know Him. God has promised that together in the discipline of being His people and learning the Word and applying the Word, we will rejoice. God has promised. David has a whole lot of problems, and he's always crying about his problems. And we're always saying, I got no problems. We're always saying, I can't share my problems. We're always saying, my problems aren't as bad as others. And it's all, I mean, there's something to be said about that. That's a good perspective, but it can sometimes be dismissive of pain. And dismissing the reality of suffering is sinful. I mean, if our children, when they're toddlers, come into our room crying, blood-curling screams, there's a monster under my bed! Oh, go to back to bed, you dummy! So stupid. Oh, now my daddy hates me. I mean, you know, and there's a monster under my bed. <laughs> my life is terrible. It's perspective. We don't, we don't dismiss our own feelings. 
But let's dismiss our own pain because God's word has promised that we're going to have pain. Let's get into this text. Weakness is not what makes us valuable. What makes us valuable is that we are loved by God. And even those that aren't, according to the word of God, taught to his people, we must value them with dignity, respect, honor. We are to honor and respect those who hate us. That's another sermon. In the Psalms, we often learn them and think of them as individual units, but if you read them and read them and read them, and I read several Psalms a day lately. It's just been... On the days I read, when my mind is weak, I sometimes don't even read anything. But in the Psalms, they're collected in such a way that they're put together in themes. And I wish that the publishers would put them in those themes. So for example, the themes of Psalm 37, 38, 39, and 40 is, 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 a, is a compounding, progressive teaching. And they're ordered such in Scripture to display these themes. Psalm 37 exposes the need to wait upon the Lord. That He will not leave and forsake us. So wait upon the Lord. Be patient. The Lord is at hand. Sound familiar? See, because the apostles teach the same stuff. Jesus teaches the same stuff. In Psalm 38 and 39, talks about how we wait for the Lord. Let's look at ourselves. Let's think for ourselves. Let's contemplate ourselves. See, the world, the world of spiritual elites tell you not to do that. I want you to think about it for a second. Now, this is descriptive. But if David expressed it, it shows the nature of humanity. It shows the nature of a righteous man. It shows the nature of a sinful man. It shows the nature of one who is beloved by God, who has incredible responsibility, and he destroys everything he touches because he's so emotional. And he's trying to reach out and tag and tether himself to some concrete way of overcoming the fear of his life. The constant rejection, the constant uh, uh, persecution, the constant fear of death and, and pursuit. The constant fear of seeing his kingdom crumble. And just like everybody else in the world who breathes air... He tried to find some way of distracting himself from his own thoughts and feelings when the scripture would say we arrest those things and we filter them through the righteousness of Christ and the word of God. That's why the assembly is paramount. Because this pulpit, through exposition, can press us to think. Psalm 38, Psalm 39 through introspection, self-examination, and being vulnerable teaches us how David waited upon the Lord in his thoughts. And then Psalm 40. Whew, he gets pulled out of the mud. 
one of our vehicles needs some rear shocks. Yesterday, we're pulling into a parking lot, and it did like this, and my coffee spilled all over my pants. And it burned me backwards. It burned me backwards. So much so that I had to apologize for my attitude. I thought, you know, this is, this is how life is. I hate being wet. I hate being dirty. I can't stand it. I will get dirty, and then it's time to clean. I cannot stand it. If I fell in mud, I'm done, you know? Slip and fall, get into a rainstorm, we've been there. And so we think about what the text says here about being pulled out of the mire, out of the pit, out of the miry bog, out of the mud. A lot of us just go to this, you know, oh, you know, this is hard times or dirty stuff or sort of gross, like when our house flooded several times through rain in Virginia, our first bottom floor, our basement floor, finished basement, you know, six, four to six feet of water one time. You don't think about it. You just get out there in it. And then afterwards you go, I'm going to die of a flesh-eating fungus. So you lay in bleach for a few days and, and you're fine. Put it on tap. Whew, I'm clean. That's not, what's, that's not what's at stake here. It's not about unpleasant things. It's not about dirtiness. The very idea of this psalm is broken into two basic divisions. The first division is that God can be praised for his power and providence in the past. And there's a lot of peas that will come out of my mouth today. And the second division, that's verses 1 through 10. The second division is 12 through 17, is this practical pondering on the promises of God's power for his people. How do you like that? I could write a book on alliteration. But all the while, as he's writing this psalm, he's poor and needy. And his focus is that the Lord thinks of him. Why don't you think about that for a second? The Lord thinks of you, beloved. I mean, the writer of Hebrews says it. And we have a Savior, we have a Lord, we have a, we have a God, we have a Redeemer, our Christ, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who is able to sympathize with us in every weakness. He's able to understand what we've gone through in part, yet he has not sinned, so he doesn't understand that in experience. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, in his humanity, complete human condition, he has been tempted in every way to not trust the promises of the Father. He's been tempted in every way to take control of his own circumstances. He's been tempted in every way to vindicate himself and had the power and the authority to do it. Yet, he submitted to the will of the Father to become obedient unto death as an innocent human being to die as a criminal. And by the way, and Jesus did not take the Murray did not take the numbing agent. He wanted to receive the fullness. And the scripture in Isaiah talks about that. And, and then the Gospels talk about that. He, he received the fullness of the pain of the physical suffering of crucifixion as a way of aligning with the consequences of sin, which is death. So when the word says that he poured 
that he drunk the full cup of the wrath of the Father, he does so in physical and spiritual ways, and emotional and mental ways. And you can blame Trey for this sermon because months ago when he said it is okay to not be okay, and I wasn't okay that day. And I was laying in my bed listening to Trey preach that. It's okay not to be okay. And his proof was that Jesus anguished. So because of that, let's stop saying to one another, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay unless the Father wills it to be okay. Psalm 38, 39 teaches how David, through much anguish and frustration and Fear and not to make little of this reality, but almost psychotically waited on the Lord. He says in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. And it's so weak. That's not what the text is supposed to really imply. But when you're singing, Oh Lord, I pulled my hair and I beat my face. And I threw myself down in this place. I mean, that's not something we want our children to sing. Hallelujah, to beat my face. I mean, you know, there's no kid's song for that. Tore my clothes, beat my face. I'm depressed all over the place. Praise God, he's here, I'm patient. I mean, that's not the way it works. That's just not the way it works. So poetically, we have translations here. I waited patiently. We wait patiently, sort of, in the line at McDonald's. We wait patiently a little bit at the red light with the guy with the left blinker turning right. And we wait patiently when our kids come in and say, um, yeah, I have a question. Uh, 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 you remember the time? Oh. Tiny little emotional strokes. That's patience. <laughs> Sorry. David's being a little bit. That should say, this should communicate. And if you want to get into the Hebrew, go ahead. I labored immensely, painfully waiting for the Lord. That's what patience looks like, isn't it? So you don't need patience when it's not bothering you. That's not patience. That's apathy. I don't care. People think, oh, you're so patient. No, I just don't care. Patient people are on the edge of, ah! You see? That's patience. Not going, ah. But it's right there. <laughs> That's patience. <laughs> Get it right, church. Get away from this stupid Norman Rockwell cover of Christianity garbage. Oh, Lord, it's got it. God bless. Too blessed to be stressed. Too anointed to be disappointed. Why don't you take a road trip with me? So I waited patiently for the Lord. This is, this is David praising the past promises of God personally. This is a personal testimony of David talking about what he's experienced and what the Lord has done for him. 
I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Remember verse 17? He takes thought of me. Now let me stop right here. David had no idea whatsoever that this would be used as a Christological prophecy. We know in Hebrews 10 and other places that this, there is an allusion to this related to Christ. Christ himself speaks these words. David didn't know. David was talking personally. But God was working prophetically. Two more Ps. The Lord heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. We may not get through much more than these first few verses today. Because a lot of commentators like to contemplate what was going on in the personal life of David at this time, what character issue he might be working through, and they create this caricature of David and, well, this was happening and then that was happening and this was happening. But because we're so silly and because we're so quick to forget that this is an expression of David's experience, that's what poetry is all about, an implied, a desired, or an actual experience, to be short. That if it said, oh, he drew me out of this terrible headache that I had, then we would only use this psalm when we had a headache. Or, my children were so mean, they tracked mud on the floor, we would only use this psalm when we were frustrated with dirty carpet. It's like when Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. His imagery, he says, a messenger from Satan. See, I know some people like that. Satan, Graham. I mean, you know, devil delivery. I mean, can you see him? But there's a reason Paul never says, it was my eyesight, it was my spouse. It was my children. It was my animal. It was my legs. It might have just been his emotions. It might have just been his constant nagging fear. It might have just been his overwhelming sense of dread that was juggled with a sense of peace at the same time. Read 1 Peter chapter 1. Joy is inexpressible in the midst of fire. Oh, I'm loving this fire. At least I'm not cold. It's not like that, y'all. Stop it. We are in a prison of performance in the church. Folks, we got to stop it. It's nearly killed me. It's nearly killed me. The Lord leaned into me and heard my cry, David says. Now we know Christ has the same cry. We'll talk about that 
as we move through this text, we know that Christ can be applied as the true and final son of David, right? The great and true and perfect David, the king. And out of the miry bog and out of the pit of destruction can be anything. It can be the monster that you think is under your bed that's not under your bed because it doesn't exist. It can be the, the, the overwhelming sense of dread. It can be the pain and the anguish of not wanting to face pain and anguish. It could be hunger. It could be heartbreak. It could be cancer. It could be divorce. It could be anything. And as a beloved child of God, God inclines His ear toward us in everything. Some six to eight weeks ago, my bifocals, I was cleaning them with Dawn Dish Detergent. It gets it off. And I was rinsing them with the warm water. And the contemplation of my mind and where it was going was such that instead of dabbing the paper towels on the thing, I sanded the glasses. I cannot see out of them. So I have these long distance glasses, which is why I sort of have to back up here to see what I'm looking at. And then yesterday I'm looking for some magnifiers and these fall and the lens breaks and falls out on the floor and scratches. So now I've got all sorts, I've got an appointment Thursday, so maybe we'll get it all square. But in those two moments, It wasn't that big a deal. But when you can't see, and you can't read, and you can't tell if the sign above that toilet paper says extra soft or extra absorbent or flash paper for magician's fire, and you buy the wrong thing, you're going to be in trouble. So for those few moments, my life was done. I want you to think about this for a second. A few years ago, oh, I scratched my glasses. Oh, well. For 45 seconds yesterday, I felt like I had busted my head open on a concrete slab. The only pair I have left? Great. It's a pit. That's no real big deal, man. Why are you letting that stuff bother you? Okay. Dismiss it if you want to. The next time you're feeling a little off and life's just not going your way and it causes you to pause and feel bad for yourself and take pity on yourself, remember that that's the advice you give people. That's not the advice the Bible gives us. The Bible tells us the Lord inclines to you and sets your feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. I didn't wake up this morning with both pairs of my glasses healed. It's like I have glaucoma, you know. You've got, you know what I'm talking about when you've got a scratching glass. It's like, Wing. it's the effects we like to see in pictures. Not when we're walking around. Whatever your pit is, 
Sometimes God takes us out of it and removes it from us. And sometimes God reminds us that He's our rock in the midst of it and He will not remove it. He did not remove David's problems. And He did not remove Paul's thorn. He refused it. He says, my grace is enough. I don't need grace, we say. I need the grace to get away. We don't need to get away. Weep into the pain with tears of joy. David was good at that. Where you get all that from? Verse 3. God heard and listened and drew him out. God is in the business of drawing us out of our despair. If you have five pairs of glasses and you break one, you're like, no. When you have one left and you break it, it's like, oh. There's a difference. But he put a new song in my mouth. I mean, listen to that song. A song of praise to our God. And many will see and many will hear. And they will put their trust in the Lord. Beloved, the psalm is doing that for you this morning. And this psalm did that for me Monday. So now I get to share it with you. It's just that simple. Because God is mighty. And some of us are thinking, well, how am I going to how am I going to manage these thoughts? Well, if your thoughts are all-encompassing and overwhelming, see a therapist. Well, I just don't believe in that. Then by all means, don't you ever go to the doctor for anything else. Let me make a side note here that's going to really ruffle some jimmies. Anyone who tells you that your mental health is not real medicine-worthy, doctor-worthy, therapy worthy, you should flush them down the nearest toilet. Especially if they say to you, it's just a spiritual problem. That is the most demonic thing that's ever come out of the mouth of a Christian. Your brain can get just as sick as your stomach because it is an organ. And the difference is, when we think, we stink. And some of you may have that sentiment. Please do me a favor. And don't ever let me hear you say it. Because I will rebuke you with the greatest love I can muster. I have untold disasters in my mind. Countless. I, can't, I wrote names down last week of the number of people who refused mental health care. And who are no longer with us. And the number of people who have said in those times, well, they just probably weren't right with the Lord. I'm telling you right now, sometimes the Lord won't heal those things either. But He will put a new song in your mouth. And when you sing it, other people will trust in the Lord that you are singing about. Think about it for a second. 
We've got a friend whose parent is going through the last stages of dementia. They don't know their own children anymore. Well, if that person had just trusted the Lord. <laughs> you see how silly that sounds? Be careful when we dismiss things too quickly. So in this psalm, this personal praise of the power of God in David's past, and now we'll see in his future, David is expressing the joy of the Lord, God leading us out of death, out of mire, out of whatever it may be, by saying, my grace is sufficient. The reality of this, beloved, is that there is nothing that experience that we can experience in this life, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, relationally, anything. There is nothing in this life that God cannot give us joy in the midst of. Nothing. So stop letting the world of so-called Christians tell you otherwise. And stop listening to the inner voices of the devil's delivery service that tell you that it's your fault. It's not our fault. It is the fault of a fallen world. Verse 17, I am poor and I am needy. Amen. It is so. Let it be. Let's stop trying to be these strong, ridiculously dumb warriors in the image of what the culture has said a warrior is. The greatest warrior that has ever walked the earth is Jesus Christ. And he fought with humility. He fought with passion. He fought with truth. And he stood before men who he created to give glory to him and to worship him for his absolute divine essence. And he sat quiet while they said, you are going to die because your presence here is destroying our prosperity and our power and our position in this world. And we are the gods of our domain. And you, O oh Jesus of Nazareth, born of infidelity, will not stop us. And Jesus says, Take this cup from me, Father. But not my will, but yours be done. And we are. You see? And that oratory, because of how I talk when I'm excited, angry, mad, upset, or indifferent, it can get you feeling things. I don't want you to feel things. I want you to hear it. I want you to know it. I want you to see the song of praise. And as David moves out of these next few verses, he goes into a proclamation about generally speaking, it's not just because some people say, well, that's just David. That's just you, Tippins. But he segues, doesn't he? They will see and hear, and they, many, will put their trust in the Lord. Look at verse 4. He talks about they. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man who does not turn to the proud. What is the proud? I can do it. I got it. We can say, I can handle it, because the, the Lord our God is our fighter. We are more than conquerors. And we can handle much more than we think we can by the grace of God. Blessed is the man who does not turn to those who go astray after a lie. 
So David has turned this introspective, I wait on the Lord and He's given me joy now to the congregation. He's like, generally, you who are the children of God, you are blessed. Make the Lord your trust. What that means, trust in Him. It's not saying that you do something to make God something. We need like third grade grammar in America. Like when somebody says, let the joy of the Lord or let the word of God. It's not giving permission. And then the verse 5, he praises the Lord again. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. Again, this theme, God is inclining his ear, inclining his love, inclining his gaze. This is the God of the cosmos and he is looking at you. He's looking at you, beloved, not so that he can catch you in some dirty deed. He's looking at you because he loves you and he killed his son for you. He's looking at you because he hears the cries of your silent moans. He loves you because his spirit indwells you and he has sealed you for his glory one day to be just like Jesus Christ in splendor. To share in the crown of righteousness. And he's saying there. You've multiplied your wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us. None can compare to you. None can compare to you. Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. When he talks about being crushed and perplexed. But not driven to despair. Beat down but not destroyed. All these things always given over in the body and the flesh to death, but in the spirit life. Though I die, I live. Though I die, I live. Though I've been destroyed, I'm alive. Though I am unable to walk, I stand. Isn't it sound crazy? It sounds crazy. And beloved, I have fought this my entire life. Off and on, off and on, off and on. And you have too. And I'm going to fight it tomorrow. And I may have a couple of more weeks of extreme bliss and focus. But I will fall into the rut of giving in to the mundane. I will put down my, 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 my focus on what is divine. And I will devour the good things of the world. And sprinkle along the ends my steadfast resolve to look at the cross. And then I'll find myself tripping. Not a 1980s, 90s tripping, but I mean literally falling. (laughs) None can compare to you. I will proclaim and tell of your deeds, yet they are more than can be told. See, these aren't platitudes, beloved. Let me stop right here. I'm I'm not going to be able to get through the rest of this. I'll finish it next week. These are not platitudes. These are not little, God is good all the time, all the time. These are not these silly little colloquialisms. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells of the good of the Father. Points to the Father, proclaims the Father's work in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. David knew it, but didn't understand it. And you and I know it, and we do understand it. How much more so should we proclaim and tell of them? But in social circles of Christians, it seems so much easier just to talk about all the bad stuff and all the false stuff and all the stuff. 
It's nonsense. It's, I'm tired of it. I'm exhausted with it. I don't want to hear it. If I get another article about some heretic, I'm going to throw myself in a pyre. You see? I don't care. I literally read my lips. Do not care about the false teaching of the world. God ordained it. Hoo-yah! I am fine with what God has ordained. I do not care about all these grievances everywhere else. You know what I care about that's going on in the world? The suffering of people. The marginalization of people. The dismissiveness of people. I no longer care about my rights or my privileges or entitlement. Beloved, this is not the way of Christ. It's the way of the Father of lies. We have to, as God's chosen, understand there is a strict divorce requirement when it comes to worldly ideologies. Why? Because the reason we can't celebrate and proclaim the good deeds of the Lord is because all we're doing is looking at the trash in the world. I'm not saying we don't pay attention. Because like I said, when we see people being dismissed and undermined and maligned and marginalized in the world, we must do what we can. But we don't stop proclaiming the gospel. And we certainly don't make it something that it's not. For some of us, we're in the pit of being that person. For some of us, we're in the mire of being bogged down with the evangelical cult ideologies. For some of us, we are, our pit is being marginalized, is being unheard. And we're so victimized that we can't even celebrate the joy of Christ. Beloved, the church ought to be a place of healing, ought to be a people of healing, ought to be a family of focused intention that we may celebrate the gospel of grace together. And it is the answer to every one of our despairs. It is not about doing or being better. It is not about becoming more like Jesus in every sense. And I'm not saying we dismiss those ideas, but that's not what it's about. Very quickly in verse 6, look, In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book it was written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. He just says, I delight to do your will, but then in the will of God and the law to do all these things, but it's not the things that God delights in. It's going to take me 30 minutes to go through those three verses. So it's going to have to be next week. Because this is where the Christology, this is where the example of Jesus, this is where the prophecy becomes to unfolding. So the Christian life is not about becoming more grounded in a social structure of Christian living. It's about rejoicing in the midst of all type of crap and pain and suffering while caring for others in their suffering even if we don't understand why it's really that bad. Could you imagine if I couldn't preach today because I broke my glasses? And how ridiculous that would sound to most of you? happen it could happen 
Well, why is he so upset about that? I don't know. Why are you so dismissive of it? No matter the relative idea of how we gauge other people's suffering, it's real for them. It's real for them. People whining about their bank accounts and whining about their grass growing and whining about everything else, all the while ignoring real suffering from their neighbor. You see? That's just an example that pops in my head because I've done that. I'm not reading your mind, I'm just sharing mine. Beloved, we're poor and needy. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. And I want you to hold that. I want you to hold that. Because he goes on to talk about proclaiming the goodness of God, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming. We proclaim to ourselves, we proclaim to our households, we proclaim it's okay. Just proclaim. If nobody listens, that's okay. Just proclaim it. But learn to sit and wait upon the Lord. And sit and wait until next week and we will continue in this song. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I pray that you would use my just disjointed things that I say for your purposes, that it would not distract from the word that you have given us, Lord, that, that your spirit would do the work that I think sometimes I have to do. Father, we thank you for freedom. Lord, I thank you that you've put in my heart things that as a church family that we need to address in time, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help me be patient and that you would protect us from my dogma, the way I may say certain things or announce or pronounce certain things father has often in my life gotten me in trouble with other people's emotions so lord help me to be sensitive to that and to receive that correction as it comes lord help us all to hear and to desire the word if we just could read this psalm every day this week lord put in our hearts to do so that we may rejoice start to put ourselves in the place of others start to teach things that aren't necessarily culturally acceptable in the confines of customary Christianity, Lord. These are things that we need to address. And you know what they are because you know my heart and you know where I have been anguishing for so long. So we thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient in all of this. Father, help us to quit being heroes. You are the God of all things and you incline your ear to all of your people. Through the giving of your son, through the sacrifice of his life, through the resurrection of him from the dead. And Father, you also incline your ear to our prayers and to our cries and to our moanings. And we thank you for it. So incline your ears to us, Lord, as we grow and as we learn and as we live this life by faith in the one you have sent. Who loves us and who gave himself for us. Father, most of all, empower us with joy. Empower us with hope. We thank you for it in Christ's name we pray. Amen.